Good morning, church. Hi, Jess. Good to see you today. Uh, glad that you are all here with us. Uh, it is such a privilege uh, to be able to worship Jesus together. And, uh, and one of the primary ways that we seek to do that every single week is by opening God's Word. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 is where we are going to be this morning. If you want to grab the Bible, it's right in front of you. If you turn to page 902 in that, spot, in that Bible, that's where you will find our passage. And while you're turning there, if you're a guest with us especially, uh, we want you to know right from the beginning uh, that we believe that this Bible that we are opening is the inspired Word of God. Uh, we believe that this is inerrant in the original manuscripts and then sovereignly preserved for us through the generation so that through the reading of this book and the illumination of his spirit, we believe we can know God. Uh, we can love him and follow him and worship him. And we believe so much in the sufficiency of God's word that we don't think that what I'm about to say today really matters at all unless it agrees with what the Bible says. We, we want to collectively be a church that believes it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says, so what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And, and if you come to the conclusion that the Bible has authority over your life, it changes everything. And so I don't just want you to take my word for it, but I want you to know where we stand, and this is why we want you to see God's word for yourself today in John chapter 16. Uh, John 15 through 17 uh, contains the farewell discourse of Jesus. These are the last words of instruction that Jesus gave to his closest followers before heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where he would be arrested and then later crucified. And the fact that these are his last words doesn't make them more inspired, right? All of God's word is true and it is valuable. It's, we don't pay more attention to the red letters than the black letters. If you have a Bible that has Jesus' words in red letters, I'm, I'm fine with that, by the way, unless you think that the red letters are better than the other ones, right? Because it is all the inspired word of God himself. Jesus said so. And so all of God's word is true and valuable, but it is unique to have a window into this conversation on the last day of Jesus's life. And as Jesus shares his heart with the disciples, our desire for this series has been that our hearts would align with Jesus's heart for us. We want our hearts to align with Jesus's heart for us. We want to want what Jesus wants because what he wants for us is better than whatever we think we want for ourselves. And, and in our passage today, we will see that one thing Jesus wants for us that I would assume we also want for ourselves is joy. It's joy. Jesus wants you to have joy. You know that? Jesus wants you to have joy. And not just any joy, but the type of joy that no one can take away from you. Have you found, have you found that type of joy yet? In your life. Uh, This is what makes joy different from happiness, okay? Because happiness is based on whether you like what is happening, right? Our happiness is based on our happenings. Happiness has a tendency to ebb and flow based on the immediate circumstances around us. But I would argue that biblical joy is the sustained gladness of our spirit that is produced by the Holy Spirit as we see Jesus for who he is, as we see Jesus as glorious. Biblical joy is the sustained gladness of our spirit produced by the Holy Spirit. It's a a fruit of the spirit that happens as we see Jesus as glorious. I would argue that joy is not something that we choose directly 
directly. We talked about this when we were going through Philippians, but it's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that he wants to produce in us as we abide in Jesus, which means that nothing threatened our joy more than the events that were about to unfold on this night when Jesus was speaking with his disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Nothing threatened the security of our joy more than the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, It's hard to see Jesus as glorious, right? It's hard to see Jesus as glorious if Jesus is dead. So let's look at the words of Jesus in John 16, 16 through 24, and then we're just going to walk through this passage together as Jesus is telling the disciples that he wants them to have a joy that can't be taken away. Jesus said to his disciples, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So if you ever are confused by what the Bible says, you are in good company, right? The disciples, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? Right? What, what is this? We do not know what he is talking about. That's one of the most relatable verses in all the Bible. I love it. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? <laughs> what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will still see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You, you, see, you see a theme as we go through those verses? Jesus wants his followers to have a joy that no one can take away. He, he wants our joy to be full. And, and this entire passage is a dialogue that follows the, the prediction or, or the promise that Jesus makes in verse 16. So our, our outline today is going to trace that thread through these nine verses. We're going to see a promise made, then questioned, then expanded, then illustrated, then finally applied. And, and the big idea to keep in mind through all these verses is that the security of our joy depends on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. The security of your joy depends on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Look again at verse 16. This is the promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So this is the promise that Jesus makes. And the key to unlocking this passage is to figure out what in the world do those little whiles 
refer to? What, what are those means? What is he saying when Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me? If you looked up different perspectives on this and what Jesus is saying, you would find three potential answers to those little whiles. So some see this as the fulfillment, uh, some see the fulfillment of this promise as still waiting for the second coming of Christ. Jesus is saying that he's going back to the Father in a little while, but then a little while later, you will see me when I return. We're still waiting for the fulfillment of this. Others see that second little while as being fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, because Jesus had been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit coming. Uh, but, But the understanding that appears most likely to me, just based on the context, and you can see this for yourself as we walk through the passage, is that when Jesus says a little while and you will see me no longer, he's speaking of his death on the cross. And a little while and you will see me is Jesus promising his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is promising his disciples that he's going to die and that he is going to rise again from the grave. This is what Jesus had been alluding to throughout the journey with his disciples to Jerusalem. And I think it's important for us to see that Jesus predicted both his death and his resurrection. Because when you think about it, the first part of that is not necessarily uh, incredible. Um, I'm sure plenty of people have predicted their death. Because we all know that's coming, don't we? Like we, we all know, we all know that we're going to die one day. I'm pretty sure that far fewer people have correctly predicted that they would rise from the dead. Right? So a lot of people can claim that they're going to die. Maybe some people claim that they're going to rise again, but you don't believe them, do you? I wouldn't believe you if you tried to tell me that. Not many people correctly make that prediction. And Jesus made this prediction continuously because he wanted us to know that was a, what was about to unfold, what was about to transpire was not an accident. The, the crucifixion of Jesus was not a matter of Jesus being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. No, this was God's plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world. This is why Jesus had come into the brokenness of this world. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. You you can look at what Jesus said. I'll have this on the screen. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Don't make that mistake. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus is promising that he will die on his own terms. When his hour has come and not an hour earlier. He has authority to lay it down and to take it up again. Again, he predicted that he would rise from the dead. All the way back in John chapter 2, he had been saying the same thing. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. They were thinking physically, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, me, and I will raise it up in three days. Days. The most important question for you to answer in your life 
is whether this promise, this prediction that Jesus made is actually true. The most important question for you to answer in your life is the question of whether Jesus rose from the dead. Because if Jesus was simply an extraordinary man who did some amazing things and then died, and that was it, then you should probably find something better to do with your life than worshiping someone who lived 2,000 years ago and then died. Find something better to do. Find something better to do on Sunday mornings if that's all that happened. Plenty of other people have lived, done some great things in their life, and then died. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, by the way, he's also a liar. Because he promised. Over and over again, he promised. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are worshiping a dead liar this morning. But if he kept that promise, if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. It changes everything. It's why we have hope of a resurrection as well. It's why our joy in life can be secure no matter what circumstances come our way. But, but in the moment, but in the moment that Jesus made this promise, the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying. That's keeping in a common theme with the disciples during this entire conversation. And so look at their question. Some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And and because I'm going to the Father, that's from earlier on in this conversation. Like, what is going on? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. That is so relatable. And I greatly appreciate that they're asking these questions. So this is, we have a promise that was made, but then a promise that was questioned. And I really feel for the disciples throughout this whole conversation, don't you? Like, this this night was so rough. I'm sure that they were really trying, but they just didn't get it. Jesus had had been predicting that this night was coming, but they didn't see it coming. And I believe that was by design. I believe Jesus was predicting his death in such a way that it would be easy to see and understand once the events unfolded but not before. Because if the disciples knew what was about to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, they probably would have been trying to keep Jesus from going there right about now. Uh, It's pretty obvious that they were not mentally prepared for what was about to happen. Uh, If you know the story, they're going to get to the garden and they're going to fall asleep when Jesus asked them to pray, right? And I don't think I would be able to sleep if I knew a bunch of Roman soldiers were coming to take away my rabbi, to take away my teacher, right? And and, and then the soldiers arrive, and it's clear the disciples are not ready for that confrontation. Peter gets one ear, right, of one of the soldiers, and that's it. And who swings a sword like a hammer when they're ready for a fight? I, I I don't know anyone that does that. And then after that, they just run away. They all abandon Jesus, They weren't ready. They weren't ready. And last week, we saw that Jesus had more to tell them that they weren't able to bear at the time. And some had suggested that the reason that Jesus couldn't tell them more is because they probably would have tried to stop these events altogether. Right? Stay in the upper room. We're not going anywhere, Jesus. And so one day, one day, it was all going to make sense to them. John was going to document these conversations for us so we could learn from them this morning And and I think he probably did so with a smile on his face. 
thinking about how confused he was then and how much sense it makes now. Look at verse, look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you. And when Jesus says truly, truly, we listen up, right? We're always listening, and we're going to listen even more. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I love this. Jesus knows. He knows what they are thinking because Jesus is God. He's like that, and he, he knows that they want to ask what these little whiles mean, but But did you notice that Jesus' answer doesn't really answer their question of what he means by the little whiles? Instead, what Jesus is doing here is he is expanding on the promise that he's made. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's like, yes, we're going to find out what these little whiles mean. Nope, you're not actually. But I'm going to tell you how you're going to feel how you're going to feel during the little while so that you don't know what I'm talking about, right? And then I'm going to tell you how you're going to feel after it's over. So you will weep and lament, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And during this little while that they don't see Jesus, while they are sad, we're also told that the world is going to rejoice. Why? Because the angry mob is going to think that they got their way. Their shouts of crucify him are going to be obliged. Their thirst for blood is going to be temporarily quenched. They will rejoice at the death of God. Isn't it amazing to think about it in those terms? There was a real day in history when God in human form physically died and people thought it was a good thing, worthy of celebration, And my conclusion from that is that we should never underestimate how blinding sin is, right? If if sin is so blinding that it can make people think that the death of God is a good thing, then sin is not something to be messed with. It's not worth playing around with. Don't underestimate how blinding sin is. And I also hope we realize that this life, excuse me, that this life in a world is not our home. Right? This is not our home stadium. And that's perfectly exemplified here. We talked about this earlier in the series. Uh, this, we, are, we are not the home team anymore if we are Team Jesus in this world. Right? Like, this is the Cub fan going to the Phillies baseball game. Right? Which, which, which means that what we celebrate, we shouldn't expect the world to celebrate. And what the world celebrates will probably make us sad. A lot of what the world celebrates should make us sad. And if it doesn't, that's a sign that our affections are not aligned with God's affections. If you want to know what you really love, if you want to know who or what you really worship, look at what causes you to rejoice and what causes you to weep and lament. The world is going to rejoice while the disciples are sad because the world, in how it's talking about here, it's not talking about the world is in the physical earth. It's talking, about the, it's talking about people and a system that is anti-God. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about the world here. And we should probably be a little concerned if we rejoice about what the world rejoices in. 
instead of being sad at what the world rejoices in. Jesus promised that in a little while, I would say less than 24 hours after saying these words, those who opposed God would rejoice while the disciples would weep and lament, thinking that it was all over, right? They didn't understand what was happening. They have spent the last three years of their life following a man who would be rejected as king and instead treated as a guilty criminal. They were expecting a coronation, not a crucifixion, but their sorrow would be short-lived because in a little while, Sunday morning to be exact, their sorrow would turn into joy. And Jesus illustrates this promise in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. A promise made, a promise questioned, a promise expanded, and now a promise illustrated. And I need to be careful with this illustration. (laughs) Um, I do find it funny that Jesus is looking at 11 confused men. (laughs) And the picture... He uses, anyone else find this funny? The picture that Jesus uses to explain, to illustrate what he's talking about is a mother giving birth. I think that's great. Oh, that clears it up perfectly, right? And, and, and so let me start. This is a dangerous one. Let me start by saying, moms, you're amazing, okay? I'm so thankful for all of you. And so while I sympathize, I certainly can't pretend to empathize with the pain that you experience to bring life into the world. Every husband that I know that has witnessed the birth of their children, we just came away amazed at just how awesome our wives are. Amen, men? Right? We are so thankful for our wives. They're amazing. And did you notice the wording that Jesus uses to describe a woman's time in labor? He said that their hour had come after... And that's the exact language that the gospel used to describe Jesus' death. This is why I think that this little while is talking about his death right here, right? Because his hour, his hour had come. After a little while, they would not see him because his hour has come. He is going to the cross. The disciples are going to weep and lament. And Jesus uses an illustration of physical pain to describe the emotional pain that the disciples were going to experience. Uh, You you know how hospitals, uh, they have like a pain scale of 1 to 10. They ask you what your pain is. And 10 is supposed to be the worst pain you've ever had in your life. Right, And so, so everyone has a different 10 based on the levels of pain that they personally have experienced. So my 10, my 10 is when I had a kidney stone. And, and that 10 is going to be hard to top. Okay, I'm not, I'm not planning on topping that 10 anytime soon. That, that's good enough for me. Um, I, that was terrible. And anytime I have pain in my side, I just have, immediately have flashbacks. I'm like, no, no, not again. Right? But I can't say in that experience that my sorrow ever turned into joy. Because that's not usually what sorrow turns into. The best, usually, that you can hope for is for sorrow to turn into relief. 
I just want relief from this pain. And that relief is rarely sudden, besides the temporary relief from medication or something like that, right? That relief from our pain is usually a slow, frustrating process. Like little by little, you think you're getting better, two steps forward, one step back. It doesn't happen immediately, which is why I believe Jesus chooses to use the illustration that he does. Because what is unique about the pain of labor is that it ends with a baby in his or her mother's arms. And what was once pain and sorrow is replaced with overwhelming joy. And and Jesus says, so don't blame me if this was not your experience. Jesus says that the joy is so full. He says it's so full that the anguish, at least in that moment, fades from the mother's memory. Now, moms, you remember it later when your kids need to know how many hours you labored to bring them into the world, right? You remember that pain very well when they're doing something wrong and they need to be put in their place. But in the moment, in the moment that you are holding that baby in your arms, Jesus says that it fades from your memory. All you have room for in that moment is joy. And this is the sudden change in emotions that the disciples were going to experience in three days. Overwhelming sorrow. Jesus is dead. Instantaneous, overwhelming joy. Jesus is alive again. Right? Like, what would it have been like to be in the room when Jesus physically appeared to them? Right? They, they touch his nail-scarred hands and feet. They, they see the risen Christ for themselves. Overwhelming joy. A joy that Jesus says at the end of verse 22, no one can take from them. You can't undo what happened Easter Sunday morning. So they can persecute you. They can threaten you. They can arrest you. They can exile you to the island of Patmos, John. They can crucify you upside down, Peter. But they can't take your joy. Because the security of true gospel joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. It depends on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Once they knew that Jesus was a risen, conquering, ascending, and returning king, nothing, nothing could steal that joy. So if you want to have a joy that is secure, that isn't dependent on your circumstances, right? It's not based on your health, your finances, or your kids' decisions, right? And it's not, it's not, I don't want a joy that's based on the decisions that are made in Washington, D.C., or based on the weather, or my sports teams, or my bank account. None of those things are very secure, They're far too unpredictable, but Jesus tells us that we can have a joy that is based on a truth that is never changing. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. This is the gospel that Jesus, God himself, entered into the brokenness of this world, a world that was lost in the darkness of sin because we had all rebelled against God's good design for us. And Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. And then Jesus allowed himself to die the death that we deserve to die. He was wrongly arrested, illegally tried, brutally beaten, cruelly hung on a wooden cross in order to pay the sin debt that we could never afford to pay for the sins that we had committed against him. The world that hated God rejoiced that day. The disciples wept, but their sorrow would turn to joy. 
Because three days later, after a little while, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He ascended into heaven, promising to return. And if you come to the end of yourself and place your faith instead in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus, if you say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to be the forgiver of my life. I need you to be the king of my life. Then no matter what you've done, all your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus credited to your formerly guilty account. You become part of the eternal family of God. If your joy is found in the resurrection of Jesus, that's a joy that no one can touch because it's a permanent reality. Jesus is alive and that's not changing. Verse 23, in that day, when I rise from the dead, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, says that again, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So this is a promise applied. Jesus is telling the disciples what is going to change once the promise of his resurrection is fulfilled. In that day, you're not going to be asking me a bunch of questions. All these questions you now have are going to be answered. Confusion is going to give way to clarity. It's going to make sense. And then Jesus, for the third time in this conversation, points them to the power of prayer. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. They hadn't prayed in Jesus' name yet because Jesus was with them, right? So they just asked Jesus for what they needed while Jesus was with them. But after the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, they would pray to the Father in Jesus' name. And again, we talked about this earlier in the series. That's not promising. That's saying in Jesus' name. At the end of our prayers are these magic words, right? You don't, you don't just get to say whatever you want and then say in Jesus' name at the end and think that God has to do it. That's not the way prayer works. We pray in Jesus' name because he's the only one through which we have access to a holy God. We are friends with the Son who gives us access to the Father. Jesus is our great high priest. We boldly approach the throne because we are not entering on our own accord. It's not our resume. We come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And we also pray in Jesus' name by praying based on who Jesus has revealed himself to be, right? So based on what his word says, we know that he is our provider, so we pray for his provision. He is our wisdom, so we pray for wisdom. He's our healer, so we pray for healing. He is our savior, so we pray for salvation. He's our protector, so we pray for his protection. He is exalted over all, so we pray for him to be glorified. If his word abides in us, whatever we wish, it will be done because it aligns with the will of the Father. We pray what's revealed to us in God's word in Jesus' name. But have you thought about this? Another reason we pray in Jesus' name is because Jesus is alive. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, praying in Jesus' name wouldn't make much sense, would it? So church, every time we say in Jesus' name, amen, that should serve as a reminder, we have a risen Savior. 
He defeated sin for us. He's defeated death for us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We know where he is. He intercedes on our behalf. So we pray in the name of Jesus, testifying to ourselves and to others about the reality of the resurrection. And so every time we receive an answer to our prayers, every time God works for his glory and our joy by answering our prayers, it serves as assurance that Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's where he promised he would be. He's doing what he promised he would do. Every time you see God answer your prayers, let it fill you with joy that Jesus is alive. He kept the promise that he had made over and over again. And church, I have to tell you, we are seeing God work in so many ways. Uh, We're seeing God answer prayer. um, And some of them you get to hear about, others that you don't. Uh, But Gary and Dorinda Becker uh, just have an amazing story of an answered prayer for their daughter that's happened over the last month. And you guys can come on up. Uh, Some of you have probably heard parts of the story. um, But I asked them to come share a testimony of how God answered prayer for provision and healing for their daughter, Rachel. And I just want you to celebrate this with them today. Um, We celebrate that God answers prayer so that our joy is full. And it's an incredible story. And I'm going to turn it over uh, to them. So you tell us about what God has done. Unknown. Unknown to us at her birth, our second daughter of five daughters, we named Rachel Joy. Unknown was the condition inside her body of a skeletal deformity that would, in later life, make her very incapacitated, not able to breathe without pain, not able to run, not able to exercise, needing medicine, uh, serious heart medicine at the age of 40. And so with this situation, she was being treated and discovered a problem in her chest cavity. And this is the the difference of uh, a normal chest cavity to uh, a chest cavity that uh, uh, is Rachel's. And and her heart and her lungs do not have the room uh, to operate. And, And so this was her situation. And so she was recommended a surgery. Usually this is found in, in childhood and corrected uh, early, uh, much harder to correct in later life. And so she had a surgery of rods put in her chest cavity, very extensive surgery and very unsuccessful. She had pain with every breath, and, and her heart rate would race as soon as the medication would wear off. And, and so she was recommended to get a, a second opinion and a third at the University of Penn Hospital, and at, at another hospital in Philadelphia, in Cooper University. And, and the man at University Penn Hospital, the specialist, said there is only one surgeon uh, in the country or world that, that, that he knew of that could handle a, a redo surgery like this. And we'll call this skilled lady Dr. J because of her long uh, unpronounceable Polish name that I'm not going to uh, embarrass myself with, but but she was recommended as as one. She met with that surgeon, and the surgery was scheduled. This surgeon only does one surgery per month, and after a 14-month wait, uh, there was the need of funding because the New Jersey insurance would not cover the, the Mayo Clinic out in Phoenix, Arizona. And so this uh, funding was promised, and it was... necessary and and looked like it would be accomplished. And 16 days before the surgery, 
in the final approval at the highest level of this funding, the funding was denied. And like a crushing blow, this came to her, to her husband, to her family, to our family, to the entire church family of which my son-in-law pastors. And, and we needed a miracle, a miracle. $120,000 in cash for the prepay of the self-pay was necessary. My son-in-law didn't want to ask. He's been the giver, not the receiver. He didn't want to impose upon people. And so this situation unfolded. My reaction was different. This is my Rachel. And so I, I, I thought if I would give her not just a kidney. I would give her my pancreas. I would give her my heart. I, I, would, I would give anything. Would not I give her uh, my, my retirement if I could get that out? And, and this was my attitude. They flatly refused that direction and, and, and even other direction to try to uh, go fund her. And, and, and so the church, through some private conversations, was then allowing a, a fund to be established for Rachel on a Saturday. I'll never forget it. It was the Saturday that we were trying to convince my son-in-law and my daughter to, to, to ask and to let the request go out, to post it, to, to ask, and, and to just, just explain the need. And, and so they said, no, we, we don't want it posted. Um, and and then, then maybe, and maybe you can post part, and then, then, then go ahead and post the, the words and the video. And then five minutes later, no, no, don't post. And I said, son-in-law... I appreciate you. <laughs> and it was two different pastors that shared, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And prayer went out and an open door was made. And by Sunday morning, $15,000 came in. By Sunday noon, $30,000 came in. The church had a difficult moment there for, uh, we were listening online, my wife and I, and, 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 and a man, dear man, the congregation, after this fund was announced, uh, said, don't we need a two-week uh, uh, motion and a two-week announcement and a two-week meeting? And, 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 and there was a misunderstanding there. That was the thing my son-in-law and my daughter did not want to have in the church body, any type of misunderstanding. And the man was well-intended. He wanted a two-week meeting so that they could take a loan as a church to pay for this for their pastor's wife. And, and so they, they were at kind of a low point. Sunday afternoon and to Sunday evening, about $50,000 came in. My son-in-law was preaching, and the phone rang three times with an unknown uh, phone call, uh, phone number in his phone. He called that number after that Sunday evening service. And the man who answered that phone said, Rachel's having her surgery. I will meet the entire need. $90,000 came in. $30,000 was paid by this man. Another $20,000 came in. And oh what, oh, what joy. Oh, what joy. Oh, what answer. But the prayer was not over. The prayer was just beginning. And at a special prayer meeting, a man had asked if he could pray with Rachel 
Well, we were headed to our south for a prayer meeting, but 10 minutes away was a birthday party that the whole family would be gathering at. He did not want to impose. I said, your presence is not in imposition. And it was the highlight of our birthday celebration. And he came, and we circled in prayer. And I was reminded that 12 years earlier, he had asked me and another pastor to come and to anoint his child, his son, premature in the neonatal intensive care unit in St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem. And I remember scrubbing, and I remember putting the gown on, and I remember him stopping us at the door before we went into that unit and saying, if you don't believe that God, and and the next word is fuzzy with both of us 12 years later, with his son joyfully strong and alive, alive, this, the next word, God can, God will. I, 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 don't, I remember, if you don't believe God will, healer, don't come in. He remembers, I don't want just a religious exercise. I don't want you going through the motions. I want the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men. I want believing prayer, and the best I can offer is, Lord, I believe, help out my unbelief. But that was okay for Jesus, too. And so we offer it. To Jesus, when he prayed, he, he it was different ones that prayed, and I I was praying, Lord, this would be a lot cheaper if you just healed her without the surgery, and and somebody said Amen, uh, and, and and Rachel, and and then uh, he he prayed, and before he prayed, he said, uh, I'd like to ask you, Rachel, what did the blind man say before Jesus healed him? When he asked, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, that I receive my sight. And he strangely asked Rachel, what do you want me to do? And Rachel gave a strange answer. She said that I might be able to jog up the hill at Camp Calvary. A hill as a child she could never get up and walk up even, let alone jog up. A hill as a a worker there that she just stared at, not able. Lord, that I might receive my jogging shoes. And it was after this prayer and then this successful surgery and then this totally different recovery and then this regaining of strength and quickening lessening of pain medication and recovery uh, that the surgery in the post-op before they could fly back to South Jersey said, Rachel, everything looks good. You can start preparing for your marathon. (laughs) That's what she she said. Jorinda reads. I just want to share from Rachel herself. She writes, this is post-surgery. It was as if God came down to me that night when the need was posted late Saturday night and 27,000 was there by the end of church the next morning. His spirit welling up in the bowels of compassion in his saints to come together and fill this need for me, assuring me that he's heard every cry, seen every tear, was in fact leading me to this point in our journey but he also wanted thousands of others to glorify his name through my answered prayer. A better yes. He wanted our family, our church family, to see what he was able to do, and when we were able to see 
the faith of our kids and relatives grow, the faith of our church family grow. We've received so many cards and messages of how people saw the request, thought it was impossible, and now have had their faith bolstered, not only theirs, but their kids and their churches. We live in a small town and news travels fast. Non-church members from the community were stopping at the church and to James' uncle's auto shop to drop off cards and checks and were, a- and were able to hear about God's provision and see him glorified. James Struggle, that's her husband, pastor and Christian school teacher, feelings of, am I doing the right thing if I can't provide? We were both humbled when so many thanked us for allowing them to be a part of God's provision. And we were reminded once again that the only investment we can take to heaven are people's souls. Yes, use wisdom, but yes, seek the kingdom and live out Matthew 6. Lastly, God's provision doesn't always come in the form of $100,000 in less than 24 hours. God's greatest provision came in the form of his son's death on the cross and our sins for our sins so that we could have eternal life apart from this sin-cursed world full of trials and needs. He wants us to have fight he wants us to have fiery furnace faith like those in Daniel 3 who said our God whom we serve is able but if not be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship another. I want my $118,000 miracle story to be another account that shows off the glory of God to others. He is able to do far more exceedingly than all that we could ask or think. We can trust him. Forty years ago, joy was turned as we gave birth, as she gave birth. We named her Rachel Joy. Her heart and lung capacity expanded. Her heart and ours filled with joy. That's Rachel and her family, her husband, uh, James, and their four children. Isn't that an awesome story? It's amazing uh, to see what God does. I'm so thankful. So thankful. Um, that's a story that should cause us to rejoice. Um, not just because of the physical healing that Rachel experienced, um, but because the answered prayer points us to the greater reality of Jesus' resurrection. That we pray in the name of a risen Savior. That's what our joy depends on, no matter what comes in this life. The security of our joy depends on the reality of Jesus' Resurrection. So I want you, church, to have a joy that's secure. I don't want you to go looking for counterfeit sources um, for what can never really satisfy because it doesn't last unless it's found in Jesus. True joy only has one source, and that joy is secure because Jesus has already defeated our greatest enemy, the enemy of death itself. And so I trust that you find your joy in him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the joy that we can find in Jesus. And thank you uh, for the answered prayer that points to the reality of your resurrection. And so I pray uh, that we wouldn't go looking for this world, for what 
can only be found in Christ. And so I pray that as we find our joy in you, uh, that it would bring you glory um, as you answer prayer, as you work in our lives, as you give us a sustained gladness, even in the midst of sorrow and pain that is inevitable in this broken world. Uh, So I pray that our joy would not be based on our circumstances. It would be based on the reality that Jesus is alive. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, a risen Savior. Amen.